0: Drew Meredith, we're back and we're talking passive income investing. Hey, John. It's good to be back. In 20 minutes or less, we're going to break down this idea called passive investing. We're going to talk about income generation from a portfolio. Uh, We've got about 25 plus years of experience between the two of us. So, we're going to try and distill some of the core nuggets that you need to know. But as always in these series, these mini series, if you need more information, please check out the show notes. There is a resources section where it... You can dive deep because this is something that deserves a lot more attention.
1: Most of that experience is mine too.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's my second day here. No. <laughs> so, mate, maybe to kick things off, why is passive in? Oh, sorry, passive income investing so fascinating to people.
1: I think because it's so important and, and it probably doesn't get as, as much focus as it should. So, we mm-hmm. generally focus on helping retirees. We've worked out over 15 years. That's where our specialty is. And we work that out because it requires a completely different approach. Mm-hmm. When you're investing in your younger years and you're not drawing an income from your assets, you don't need any additional income, you can take as much risk and you can, I think we said in, an, in another uh, episode, you can you know overcome mistakes or you can, you can catch up. When, you're, when you've got a limited pool of capital and you're trying to generate a, a, a passive income from it, that requires a completely different approach. Mm. And it is essentially, we see the emotional impact of retirement more than anyone. And I was looking at a paper about what you know financial advisors are more, and more involved in the emotional side of finance than the actual investment part mm. uh, more and more. But when you turn at retirement from, ha- from seeing your capital always go up to then relying on it, to draw an income, same as when you're 40 or 50, yep. if you're now relying on it to draw an income, is very different and a massive emotional challenge. Yep. So, decumulation as opposed to accumulation like you would with superannuation when you're younger is is completely the opposite of everything you've probably been taught.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I heard the other day, I don't know, I haven't seen any s- actual study on this though, that the average millionaire has seven sources of income. Yeah. So, there's a distinction here between passive income and active income. Uh, active income would be your employment, which is limited by the amount of time that you have in your career. You know, exactly. you can only- Most people can only work 40 hours a week before they be, begin to go into exhaustion. Well, maybe we'll just maybe. Give, give each other a <laughs> wink because we're like, yeah, 40, 40 hours wink. <laughs> in three is, days, maybe. Yeah. But for most part, like most people are time constrained. And yep. so the, the natural reaction is to increase your income some way through salary or something like that. But that can, you can still hit a ceiling pretty quickly on that. So you've got to find another source of income. Uh, we'll talk more about this in our discussion of Warren Buffett. And you can also go back and listen to our personal finance uh, episode where we talked about uh, basically how to get a bigger shovel and to save more in the early days. But to Drew's point, once you're earning more, really, and you're saving more, you need to get to a point where you get like escape velocity, you yep. know, where you hit that point where income from a passive source is starting to overwhelm the active source. And that can and be
1: multiple sources too. Yeah. Like- it's so not what could it be? Shares, term deposits, property, mm-hmm. side hustles, yep. content, yep. podcasts. <laughs> podcasts. <laughs> could be. It yeah, could be completely anything. And I think that's one of the biggest messages is diversification, mm. not just in stocks or bonds, but in multiple sources of, of different income. Mm. And it's you know it's never been easier to start your own business or freelance on the side. Yeah, um, It's more active income, but yeah. having multiple sources of income streams that aren't related and aren't correlated so that one income source doesn't rely on the other one, is not going to fall when the other one falls.
0: And people can get super creative here. You mentioned the idea of side hustles. That can actually be passive because people- now more than ever, I think the power is shifting back to say creators. Yeah. So that could be someone that creates a physical object, like I don't know, if you have a hobby of woodwork, or if you're someone that's online and you create or you design things that can be made at scale through websites and printed and shipped and done all that you know automatically in the background. Exactly. So there's multiple ways to make money these days. Um,
1: and that's about having the flexibility. Yeah, I think there was a quote, probably point. a bad quote, but you use your money to buy time, or something along those yeah, lines. Buy back your time. Yeah, yeah. And you have that flexibility when when you have a passive income that you're not tied to the the role that you're in. If mm. you know, you have the freedom to work where you want to work at that point. Yeah, could be younger, could be older, mm. uh, depending on what what that passive income objective is.
0: How about Drew? People have heard of this the the four percent, like the safe withdrawal rate, is what they call it. Um, yeah. And there's a bit of math around this that some people believe that you need, you should sustainably draw 4% or you could sustainably draw 4% from a portfolio's income. Is that valid? I
1: think it's an all right guide, but with any sort of long-term modeling, having a single output yeah. is always dangerous. You know, we do 15 year forecasts and you change one thing even slightly in the complete forecast, the change, the forecast change completely. Yeah. It's, it's very difficult to apply too much um, uh gravity to it yeah um but i think 4 we've seen uh from a, a growth oriented portfolio you can expect to generate five and if you're drawing four well great
0: you've got one percent left over there to yeah, and reinvest if you, or whatever. and you think
1: the average return from a balanced portfolio is probably four eight, seven to eight percent so if you're drawing the income component uh then you're letting uh, the rest of it grow continue to grow and lay to keep drawing that income so but yeah. i think it's also relies on a lot of assumptions like every yeah, like Major a economic, yeah,
0: yeah. We see them every year. Those big long-term forecasts—they change. Some years it's four percent. Some years it's seven percent. Yeah, it can be quite spooky or you know reassuring at certain times. Um, Australia has a certain proclivity, you could say, for passive income because of the tax structure around things like dividends. Yeah. Um, you know, throughout twenty twenty two, we had some great conversations with fund managers, and one thing that stuck st- stood out to me is like. The reason Australia's stock market has been one of the best performing in the world over 100 years is our dividends. Yep. Uh, can you talk to maybe the dividend environment in Australia?
1: I think franking credits are a free kick. Yeah. So, franking credits, uh, I'm sure we've gone through them on here before. Yeah, tax credit. Yeah, you get a credit for the tax paid by the, the company you own. Mm-hmm. Uh, essentially, it's to avoid double taxation. So, you report that as income, but that whole credit is off- can be used to either offset tax you have to pay or- if you're not paying tax, or if you're in a super fund, it can be refunded, yep. uh, and it's always part of a, an election policy. <laughs> yeah. um, so, what it actually, essentially, what it uh, means is you're you're able to generate a higher return. And uh, I mean, the big benefit and what's driven it in Australia so much is that it's that tax bet, tax advantage versus capital gains. Yeah. So, as soon as you realize a capital gain, that's included in your in your margin, marginal income yep. with okay. no credit. Yep. You might get a discount if you've held it for long enough, Yeah, um, but definitely.
0: How about then in terms of like, how do you actually harvest? Like we all want to plant the seeds for yep. this. How do you, like where do you put things? Like what do you put in the ground? Like are you talking about ETFs, managed funds, superannuation? When we think about passive income, what are the key contributors to allowing us to harvest that income? Everything. Everything. Okay.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, it, depending on what your objective is, and we've probably, we've put this forward multiple times. If you- if you have a million dollars and you need $40,000 a year, yep. put it in the term deposit at 4% because and lock it in as Yeah. Basically. Don't take more risk. So, every part of passive income should be don't take more risk than you need to to achieve the objective that you want. I think naturally we mm. all want more. And we'll never, you know, as much as we'd recommend, or we would recommend it, but no one would ever fully accept 100% of portfolio into term deposit. (laughs) We tried getting, you know, five percent in a term deposit at eight percent back in 2007, but the, you know, the share market was doing 20% at the time, and no one wanted to lock in eight percent when they thought they could make 20 somewhere else. So,
0: that's nice, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) A perfect example.
1: (laughs) And then, yeah, 12 months later, and everyone wishes they had more, more eight percent term deposits. Uh, So, yeah, the first one would be your the assets that you buy need to be determined by your objective and how much income you want to produce never take more risk than you need to in mm. pursuit of that income
0: one of the things is that australian shares tend to be better than say us shares because of the the franking credit tax system. Benefits, yeah. yeah the tax benefits so do you find people that do have an income objective say have like 4% or 5% a year do you tend to skew a portfolio ever so slightly towards, if you had to choose between shares, Australian shares?
1: Not particularly. I oh, think no. I think really? you'd want to be wary of relying only on the on the headline income okay. that you're getting from an investment. Uh, what's just as important, and, and a, a group we work with talks about a lot, is sustainable and growing income. So it's like your dividend aristocrats that you've yeah. spoken about before as well. Even if the company is paying a 2 or 3% yield, if that yield's growing, like a CSL over time and you're holding it for an extended period of time. That's more valuable than a company that's paying the same dividend 10 years in a row.
0: Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Um, And we've got some great examples of companies like that in Australia. CSL, uh, ARB Corporation, even Domino's Pizza of all things, you know, growing uh, dividends and...
1: Well, CSL Probably. pays out as much in dividends as, as it IPO'd at back in, and the same as CBA. I think it pays like 2 or $3, maybe $4 in dividends, and it IPO'd at $2 once upon a time. So, if you bought yeah. it at IPO, you're getting more than you paid yeah. every year.
0: Well, We were talking off air a minute ago about Warren Buffett bought a billion dollars of Coca-Cola uh, <laughs> many decades ago. He now receives $670, billion, uh, $670 million a year in dividends. Yeah. So, if you if you think about your cost base, you know, he would be earning a 67% annual yield. <laughs> So even if the stock went nowhere it, yeah. he's still making money.
1: I still think he's overweight and he probably should trim it at the same yeah, time. Yeah,
0: true. Also fizzy drinks not good for you. <laughs> that was I
1: mean the and the big message there and we we'll constantly reiterate it which is diversification. So when you have when you're looking for passive income and from investments you want multiple drivers and multiple supports of that income. So people would just go oh, I buy some term deposit bonds some Aussie equities some global equities. You need to think deeper than that. Yep. You need to think what are the key drivers of the income and dividends I'm getting? within those. So, if you're buying an index fund, Mm. 30 to 40% of that will be banks. What happens if the banks struggle? What happened? The pandemic, they cut dividends by 50%. Uh, You want to make sure the economic drivers and the revenue drivers of the individual assets that you're owning are also diversified. So, if you have a bad recession, well, your bonds or your term deposits will pick up the slack while your your equities uh, are lower. Mm. And that kind of involves looking through day-to-day cash Mm. flow and Mm. towards you know, the future and the sustainable income from that portfolio or or those assets.
0: Uh, Drew, can you talk to maybe the merits of using superannuation? Um, But can you do this through two lenses? Can you imagine that you you have a client who is 30 versus a client who is 60, which is predominantly what you work with? Yeah. Can you talk to whether that vehicle being superannuation could be used for a 30-year-old for passive income versus a 60-year-old?
1: I think it's very challenging for a 30-year-old to use super for passive income, mm. but it, it makes sense as the best entity structure for retirement income in Australia, and potentially the world, if you think about what you get true uh, from superannuation. Although the, Singapore's pretty good. It's close, yeah, <laughs> if you're a resident. <laughs> I think you have to be a resident over there, do yeah. um, I think the challenge with 30-year-olds isn't that it's not a good entity structure or a good structure, it's that there's other, more probably more pressing uh, priorities. So yeah. once it's in super, you mm. can't get it out. Yep. So, if you want to buy a house, if you've got a mortgage, if you've got school fees, all these other uh, priorities come up, that's why it makes it challenging to lock up more than the minimum amount of capital into into superannuation in your 30s. Mm. But at retirement, you can't, you can't beat it if you – we'll go through it in, in a separate session, but you're, you essentially can pay no tax as it stands at the moment on balances of $1.6 million per person.
0: Yeah, which is insane. Like, it's yeah. so good. Um, so… Passive income from, I guess, a, a share portfolio, a property portfolio. Actually, that's a good question. What Do you find, would you have a preference for property versus shares?
1: Uh, I personally prefer shares. It's just, I, I, I like the idea of uh, companies being, you know, kind of living things. Yep. They're constantly evolving. And I personally view property being a bit more of a depreciating asset because yep. it costs you money to keep up. But Uh, regardless, Mm. you get started on either. They're both assets that can produce passive income and they could be part of any portfolio or any group of assets. All you want is multiple return drivers.
0: So, say a client comes to you, and I imagine this happens quite a bit, they're, uh, say, over 50. Um, They have their primary residence paid off, or thereabouts, but then they might have an investment property that's got a negatively geared loan on it. Let's say the property's worth a million, they've got a 600 grand loan on it, like pretty meaty, right? Um, but they've got a couple hundred grand in super, um, and they might have a hundred or two hundred grand in stocks and whatever. In that scenario, it would seem like the property is a very big, bulky asset. Definitely. Would you repurpose that asset? Just I, I gave you very limited information. I'm doing this on the spot. Would you consider repurposing that asset or doing something else with it?
1: You mean recommending sell be sold and or... then
0: put it into super, or um, even into like a portfolio that can harvest franking credits?
1: Yeah. The challenge with properties, it's always quite emotional, even if it's an investment property. There's always an emotional connection. Uh, we wouldn't per se recommend most of the time people would come with an intention to sell or diversify. Yep. We'd always look at what are the where's all your assets. So if you, you've got a house, probably a million dollars. You've got this one's probably a million, and then you've got a million in in uh, superannuation or investments, well then two thirds of your asset base is in one asset class and residential property. So we would yeah. naturally say at some point, if you if you are retiring now, you need to liquidate those holdings in some way to make them into, uh, what's it, more liquid assets that you can actually live off because obviously you can't live off, mm-hmm. you can't sell parts of your house, you can only use the rent that comes out. Mm, uh, I, so it would be- Sorry, go. Yeah.
0: I, I see a lot of people uh, who achieve financial independence earlier than the retirement age of 65 or whatever. Yeah. Um, And they go through this very similar journey when they're early in their wealth creation journey. They tend to leverage into property like like so many people do. They buy one house and they use the equity to buy another house and so on. And they keep going like that for three or four properties. But then they get to a point where they're like, wow, the complexity of this versus the benefit on my cash flow is very limited. And And they really quickly... They start deleveraging like, and selling those assets and basically just chucking it all into index funds or yep. listed investment companies or blue chip shares because they're like, that is just easier.
1: Particularly now, interest rates are going up as well. like yeah. you know, A yeah. lot of leverage is becoming more painful mm. and it, uh, I think negative gearing hasn't been that prevalent or negative gearing for the last 10 years has probably been more about the depreciation and the non-cash yeah. expenses of having property yeah. where now it's real negative gearing
0: is legitimate is losing money negative yeah. gearing. you're essentially <laughs>
1: betting that the value of that house will go up and offset the money you're losing on it every year yeah and it's with interest rates high it's truly negative now
0: yeah and the ability to liquidate a portfolio or even just to harvest what we call positive cash flow like the the point about negative gearing is it's negative income so you have to make up for it some other way Yep. so that's that if that's your income you have to match it or something like this whereas with Stocks, it's almost always- When I say stocks, I mean like the whole basket, like the stock market. Um, it's basically always positively geared. Yeah. So, even if you don't want it. <laughs> yeah, Even if you don't want the income for tax reasons, it's still there. Um, how about in terms of another question we get a lot on passive income is balancing growth. You said dividend aristocrats. Balancing growth with income. Should people just be looking for the highest yielding dividend stocks?
1: No, I think there's a challenge of- tying the dividends you receive to this income that you can spend in yeah. every given year. And we know companies are volatile and dividends will move up and down, Though they sh- historically they should. Um, so I think the big challenge, or the big thing we focus on is ignore the dividends, understand what the sustainable income is from history of, of the assets you're investing into. So like over a few years, into. not just like a year or two. Exactly, yeah. and draw based on that remove the, I have quite a few clients that will go to the golf course and talk to their friends and their friends will be stressed because Telstra's dividend was lower or CBA's dividend was lower and he says to us, I'm glad you guys are there yeah. simply because you make sure that I always draw the same amount and you manage the assets behind that to make sure there's mm. there's always enough cash flow coming out or there's always cash available versus cash flow coming in.
0: I remember when our in-laws went and saw you guys yeah. <laughs> for advice <laughs> And I remember mother-in-law crying. She's like, I didn't think that this would be possible like to do it in this way, to draw that income. Yeah. And you guys manage that? Yeah. <laughs> it was just like, wow. Um, but if, you, if you're not uh, one of Drew's clients and you're not in that that uh, era of your life, that's fine. There are many other ways that you can accumulate assets. We've talked on other shows and even in, on this show regularly, we talk about uh, dividend harvesting ETFs, about like diversified portfolios of managed funds, LICs, like listed investment companies, blue chip shares, small cap shares, you can blend a portfolio together. Um, would Do you have a preference of, say, if I just pick two asset types, let's say ETFs or LICs, like listed investment companies for income?
1: Personally, I'd probably tend towards ETFs. Yep. Uh, and then listed in ca- investment companies. I mean, there's some quite unique things about listed investment companies. They're able to smooth the dividends, Mm. Uh, because they're their own tax tax effective entity structure, yep. but I prefer being able to get you know greater diversification by having multiple ETFs or or shares yep. uh, that give you know, allow you to understand a bit more clearly the drivers of the income that's coming out.
0: Yeah, um, there is a, maybe I'll just quickly touch on a few other things, and I'm just trying to get you yes or no on this before we uh, put a bow on this. Um, insurance bonds is something is a bit of a weird thing insurance yeah. bonds because you can add 125% uh, each year for ten years and then after ten years it's like it's a separately taxed entity and then after ten years it becomes tax free from capital gains perspective. Yeah. Quite complicated. That was the thirty <laughs> second version. Do you ever look at other types of vehicles for passive income or wealth creation?
1: We have. Um, one of the biggest issues has been, so annuities are like the perfect yeah, source of, yeah. uh, similar to an insurance bond. An insurance bond you're kind of locking in capital yeah, with can. no income until the end. Um, annuities have been essentially irrelevant and very difficult to recommend for the last 10 years because you're locking in a term deposit rate for a 10 or 15 year period is essentially right. uh, taking that longevity risk. And I think the most of the income, the guarantee was like 3%. So if you put a million dollars in, you're going to get, Thirty grand a year, yeah, which was hard to justify. Now interest rates are higher, it, you know, annuities become re- relevant again because they're they're able to generate a more reasonable and lock in a more reasonable income return. So we look we look at everything. Now we considered replacing entire bond and fixed income allocations with annuities if the product's right uh, and the the quality or the 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 back the company backing it is is uh, solvent, obviously solvent yeah, enough, because annuity is a bet on the solvency of that company and their ability to mm. continue to pay that income.
0: That always gives me the heebie-jeebies, but um, <laughs> I I do think that like if you do have a financial planner, uh, once you reach that stage of life, a good financial planner can de-risk a lot of a portfolio without having to worry about guaranteed types of income sources. That would just yep. be my kind of high-level superficial yep. comment on that. Um I always get a little bit concerned when someone says guaranteed. I always just get it's just something like the hairs prick up and I'm like, what? Well, uh, guaranteed but guaranteed by yeah, guaranteed. an entity that isn't guaranteed. <laughs> yeah, That's it. Yeah. So, um well, this is this is great. So, I actually there's one more question, Drew. You deal with a lot of retirees and this is this is for both people who retire early in their 30s, 40s or 50s, but also people who reach retirement. Is that there's a particular type of emotion drew that happens? When someone goes from earning active income i e their job to earning solely passive income, yeah there's a very like people go on this emotional roller coaster. Can you just talk us through that?
1: It's incredibly challenging. So you think if you retired with a million dollars and you don't you know make it easy fifty thousand dollars a year or you'd say fifty thousand dollars a year, and then on day one the share market falls and yeah. bond markets fall, and you see the value of your assets fall by more than fifty thousand dollars in a single day yeah. It is incredibly uncomfortable uh, and it's, it's why most people, you know, like everything else, they kind of leave it somewhere where they can't see it or yep. you know, leave it in, a, in an industry fund. And you see a statement once a year and it looks like it's always going up. Yeah. So, it's, it's that this, for people to take control of their investments or be able to see it can actually be quite challenging without yep. understanding the drivers and reiterating the purpose of why they're investing, which is to generate, because they need to generate a higher income than what they could get in the lowest mm. risk assets like term deposits. Yeah. That's the toughest part of being a financial advisor probably is. Managing dealing that. with that emotional transition. It probably takes five years to get over.
0: Because when you're an accumulator, when you're accumulating assets, you have this tap or this faucet if you're in America yeah. of <laughs> income that's just constantly pouring into your slush fund. Yeah. It's just constantly pouring these, these dollars in. But as soon as you hit retirement- Stops. It stops. Yeah. And you don't have that safety net of, I can just make it up with some income.
1: And we're taught to, to save forever. Pay off your mortgage, save, 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 save. Money goes up, 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 up. Yep. And then it then it stops. Yeah. No yep. one teaches you about the emotions that come with that.
0: Yeah, which is such a big thing. And this is when you're supposed to be enjoying it. Exactly. <laughs> so, I, Yeah, I, one thing I finally mentioned is on the back here, we will talk about superannuation in a separate session, but um, just be mindful if you are transitioning to a period where you are thinking of relying on your passive income, it probably makes sense to get advice before you transition. I would say get yep. advice before you transition, not when you transition, because the the expert that you have on your side will help you manage that transition, not just tax effectively and within the rules, but also the emotional and portfolio allocation side, which yep. we're going to do a separate session on that too. So
1: financial advisors aren't magicians. There's a there's a good cartoon <laughs> of that, where someone comes in on retirement day and asks and asks for you know the guaranteed income, and he just says, "I'm not a magician." <laughs> Usually a lot of people come in there kind of early 50s when school fees, you know, kids have finished school, you're starting to get some real savings capacity.
0: Yep. Yep. Okay. So, if you want to reach out to Drew and the financial planning team at Waddle Partners, head to waddlepartners.com.au slash contact. If you want to hear more from us, just subscribe to the show. These summer videos or summer series, sorry, I should say, are a little bit shorter, a bit more punchier. We'll be back with regular programming in February. Uh, In the meantime, we've got a lot of other stuff to get through. So, Drew- Thanks for joining me. Thanks again. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees